Hey, what's up, everyone? It's your girl, Ida Rodriguez, and welcome to another episode of Truth Serum, where we give it to you straight with no chaser. Um, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, today, we are having a double dose of Truth Serum, two shows back to back, actually one show with two guests back to back, and we're going to be talking about the headlines, everything that's going on right now, which you've been witnessing um, uh, on Twitter, on your televisions. And uh, we are going to uh, get into it. I want to say thank you to all of you who have been supporting the show, who have been um, donating, who have been sharing and subscribing. I am very thankful and grateful to you because these conversations that we are having about ourselves and our communities and the things that affect us are important for us to keep having and, and listening to people uh, who look like us and sound like us, uh, not only speaking for us, but speaking to us and being held accountable for speaking for us. Um, today is a, a very uh, special day for me because, um, you know, I'm going to be talking to people who are on the ground uh, with the civil rights issues that we are dealing with in this country. And I just think that it is important as we approach this election that we are making infor informed decisions every single step of the way and that people understand that they will be held accountable for the use of our votes and that this is not just uh, something that ends in November for us. We will, we will be looking to you and over your shoulder and seeing everything that you're doing um, on, in November and beyond because it is imperative for our livelihood, for our survival as people of color, Black people in America, um, that we make some structural changes to what is going on. Now, since uh, the passing of George Floyd, and let me not uh, let me not phrase it that lightly. Since the execution, assassination, the lynching of George Floyd, there have been several additional, I mean, several deaths um, by our citizens, our black citizens, our people of color citizens in this country at the hands of law enforcement. And though people have been politicizing this issue and trying to make it something that it's not by you know misinforming people in terms of what defunding the police means, um, talking about Black Lives Matter as a, a communist organization, and you know there are a few things that we need to unpack and that we need to really uh, talk about um, from the not just an honest place but actually from the the place of facts. Um, first and foremost, Black Lives Matter is an organization and an ideology. And when you hear people who are out there screaming, Black Lives Matter, they're not necessarily there on behalf of the organization. And you should not try to undermine the Black Lives Matter ideology by, because you are trying to discredit the organization. Um, we do not need the, you conflating these issues. I don't know how much money the organization Black Lives Matter has received, how many donations, what they're doing with their funds. Many, many of you have your theories and, and you continuously put these out. But what that does is water down the reality that when we are talking about black, the, the reality that black, life, black lives matter and should matter, it has nothing to do with that organization. It has to do with the ideology that black lives matter just as much as all of the other lives on the planet. 
And though I vowed, I took a vow that I was not explaining and doing any more analogies about Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter, because I just think that is exhausting and it is tiring. Um, it's also a grand waste of time because if you have to convince somebody else that Black Lives Matter, that person that you're trying to convince is probably not somebody you want to talk to and be affiliated with because they, we this is this is not a, stop, a topic that that needs people do not need to be convinced about this. All right, we're gonna get the show started. We're gonna have a conversation like we always do. Here is. Um, you know, I think that it is important for people to understand why I do this and why the people who show up show up here because we have authentic conversations from our own perspective, um, where we uh, own the narrative about what we want to say about us. And when I say us, I do mean people of color, and that is not um, erasing blackness in America. That also includes black people in America who um, are at the forefront of this mo of this moment as they have always been for people like us and have made way for people like us, brown and black people from Latin America. So I just wanna make sure that we're clear about where we stand on the show and why we do what we do here. And that is, we tell our own stories. All right, this next, um, my, my guest coming here today is someone that I fan over that I've been watching. Um, there's something to say about a, a, a young black woman who owns her voice, uh, takes the power of an education and takes the force of the ancestors and creates this magic and is able to stand in, in her power, being able to correct her elders when they need to be corrected and to hijack the narrative of, of black women in America, which is all, oftentimes um, misappropriated and also mishandled. And so I am, I'm just, I love to hear her speak. Um, she's an attorney, an accomplished author, you know, just everything that you will want your daughter to be, your sister to be. Um, she's the host and executive producer of Revolt News. And it's, it's Black Revolt, right? Is it, is it Revolt Black, Black News? Yeah, what? Revolt Black News. And I love to say Black, because I think people are scared to say Black. Yeah. Ebony K. Williams, Miss Ebony K. Williams. Hi, honey. Miss Ida, thank you so much. And what a beautiful introduction. And uh, you could just call the show Revolt Blackity Black News. That's what I sometimes call it. I love, um. it. <laughs> I love it. You know what? Coming from um, Miami, where people would whisper the word black to describe a person or do this, you know, like I am, I, so I shout it. Now, everywhere I go, I'll say, I tell people, say black with me. I'll tell white people, say black, say black. <laughs> Not a bad no, one. indeed. Yeah, I, you know, everybody gets to be called what they want either, but I've, all, for some reason, always hated African-American. It just always felt, probably because I knew the history. I knew right. that at one time we were really proud to be black in the 1970s and kind of going into the 80s. And then I think it was a bit of a respectability politics thing, right? Where we, you know, felt like we, we were shamed out of being comfortable being called black. That's that's really what happened. And so I'm with you. I like to say black, I am black, I don't run away from it. And I think we have to celebrate it and change the narrative. And I think we, we've done that. I think black is very, very on right now in many ways. I'll tell you this in Puerto Rico, my grandmother, my grandmother called her husband Negro and he called her Negra. So in, mm. in salsa, um, when they call you Negra, it's a compliment. It's great, beautiful. The darker your skin, the more the more that is attributed to being beautiful. So when they say ven negra, ven linda, 
it is not, it doesn't have the connotation of being negative. It is, it has, it's associated with beauty. So I think that is just interesting to see how they hijack the word. But I um I know I don't want to spend too much time here, but it's worth noting, and I haven't really ever had a platform to share this story. So I'm a hijacker if you don't mind, sis. So my name is Ebony, right? Which very literally means black and black wood, and it's a color, it's the darkest form. I when I was growing up, people would say to me, of all colors, uh, even even my own people, you don't seem like an ebony. You know, yeah, I, I, you know, you know, or or even to this day, girl, I'll meet people. Now, oftentimes, this is white people. They'll say, "Hi, I'm nice to meet you. My name is Ebony," and they'll say, "Emily, great to meet you," or "Isabel, lovely to meet you." Abby, look, no, 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 it's Ebony. I need you to say it with me and get real damn comfortable with it. So it um, it was something that when I was younger, I I didn't know, and my mom even said, like, "Ooh, I know I named you Ebony, but I hope it doesn't make life harder for you." And what I'm proud to say at almost, you know, whatever, I'll be 37 in a couple of weeks, is that I have really taken the name, I have embraced the name. And I hope that I, in some way, have redefined what some people think of when they think about what an ebony is. It's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. It is an unapologetic thing. And, and I'm, I'm thrilled about it. It's funny because one of my friends when I was growing up, her name was Ebony. And I used to gaze at her because I always thought she was so beautiful, uh, dark skin, chocolate girl. And, you know, it's funny because I grew up in Miami where the the majority of the students that I went to school with were either black or brown. There was no we yep. had being white was an oddity at our school. Mm -hmm. probably, we have probably had two white students. And I just remember Ebony always. First of all, Ebony always had the best shoes because we was we was heavy on the sneaker game. Right. So, uh, yes, that there is a perception or a connotation of what an ebony mm -hmm. is supposed to look like. And, mm -hmm. and it so often happens with so many of our names. Like when you meet a Shaniqua and she's an attorney and you are like, it blows your mind because, you know. Let me tell you what's crazy about that. My law professor, my freshman year, I ended up being her teaching assistant. Ida, um, she taught torts. Her name is Sh Shaniqua Gray. And do you not know that when she wrote a letter of recommendation for me, and I love her to death, but she would sign her name S. Gray. And for years she went by S. Gray. But now I notice on social, she's Shaniqua. Because again, it's almost like the climate has finally gotten ready for us to just show up in our full blackness. And, and I, I celebrate it. I celebrate it. I know you do. I know you do. Um, so how are you doing right now in this moment with all of the things that are happening? Because you have to... Uh, uh, those of us who do this, we're constantly listening to what's going on. Like Ben Crump is is one of my brothers. He's my mentor. The reason I went to Florida State. So he and I are in constant communication and it's heavy. It's it is. Heavy, right. Yeah. Brother Crump is, has been doing incredible work. I had the good fortune of meeting him in Florida uh, at NABJ back in 2013, which was shortly after the killing, of course, of young brother Traymond. Trayvon and it uh, Ben's doing great work. I'm very close friends with has been um, a mentor, peer mentor of mine for years. Uh, Larry Chris Stewart, who mm -hmm. works alongside Ben Crump on a lot of these cases, uh, represented the family of Walter Scott, represented uh, co-represented Ahmaud Aubrey, a lot of these families, and Chris does that work just like Ben. And from their side, right, the the lawyers being the soldiers in the courtroom fighting for that justice. I know those brothers and sisters that do that work are tired. Then, as you say, I know we that work in the, the, the media space telling 
the stories, making sure, insisting that our stories are told authentically, factually correct, and persistently, right? Like this is not just gonna be a part of your news cycle and bloop, we in, we out. We're gonna keep keeping this relevant, keep telling this story uh, until we see the justice. And it is heavy, but one of the things I loved about your intro today that really made me, it humbled me and it makes me take stock of what I do. I, I sit in a position of privilege, right? I've been blessed to be able to complete my education. I, I have this amazing gift of knowledge both as an attorney and you know as a, as a storyteller and as a broadcaster and I have a platform so yes it's heavy yes I'm tired as hell it's freaking exhausting um but I I consider myself blessed and fortunate to be able to do the work yeah it's important though it's important and so the thing is that uh you know I I when it comes to being formal it's it it makes me feel gross because I feel like when we when we do that to each other and having these conversations we put ourselves in these places as if we value um, things that white people validate more than you know our own authentic stories. And and I am a pre, a, a person who continuously believes that our spectrum is necessary, right? Mm -hmm. Amazing brothers and sisters who who never had the benefit of of a post secondary education that have been powerful and make things happens, but and happen. But we also need you know our soldiers that do have that can pull out the law book and say this statute says this or this law is not. And so it it, it makes the world uh, of you know it, it it furthers the reality that we're not a monolith because they continuously try to frame us that way. So when I, you know, when I saw you, um, I remember when Puffy made his statement um, about, mm -hmm. and you know, you don't mince words. And that is one of the things about you that I like the most because you are of my ilk. <laughs> <laughs> Truth serum. I don't even know how to, I'd be trying to, I'll okay. go into space and I'll be like, let me everybody just fall back. Just be, just listen, be quiet for a minute. And then I'll try it and then somebody will say something like Mr. Cole said, Puff, Puff wanted to talk about holding the boat hostage and uh, other things that I found very reckless, just reckless, dangerous. Uh-uh, bro, we can't, we can't be out here. And you especially, you the most, because yeah. your reach, your impact, you change culture overnight, bro. And that's a beautiful, amazing thing, but you have to be extremely responsible. Right. Extremely responsible when you got a platform like that. And so when I saw in the show rundown that we were going to talk about his comments, I had to call up his team and be like, listen, you know, if either either I sit this segment out because it's his network and, you know, I don't want to disrespect this man on his own platform or I I'm going to need y'all's blessing to do this like I need to do it. And and to his credit and his team's credit, I got that blessing. I did. And I think we actually had a, a moment in culture that was needed. Absolutely. It was. And that was what moved me more towards you because I was like, yes, um, because we we're sitting in a time, you know, I, and, and for the last few weeks, I've had to hear this from the Young Turks on to, to every platform that I've been a part of um, that I participated in in the last couple of weeks is that, well, the Democrats really haven't done anything for black people and that they are all in this together and they both are doing this. What what do you say to the people who are saying this? Because I I I honestly believe that this stuff is being sprinkled down from the right. You know, like I mean, and yes, that there has first of all these these institutions were created when we were still not even considered full human beings. So to think that they were created with us in mind is not you know it's it, it, it's it's foolishness because we already right. know that that's the case. 
But if we historically talk about the, you know, where they stand in terms of where we, what's better for us. And that's all I'm thinking about is what's better for us. We already know what we know, right? We don't need to have that conversation because it's right. It is, it is in the given section. What do you say to these people who are right now telling everybody don't vote? Yep. And or vote uh, or make the Democrats, uh, you know, whatever, do something for the vote. And I'm like, I don't think they really understand that Donald Trump is coming for our democracy. So it's so important Ida, that people get real clear about this because it's not even complicated. Some shit is, is complicated. Yeah. Some shit is simple. That's this right. here is actually simple. Right. So we're going to do a whole episode about it tonight on Revolt Black News, Revolt Black New Black News, whatever you want to call it, um, at 9 p.m. Eastern on Revolt and on YouTube. And it's called The Black Agenda uh, Vote for Justice. So because these things are correlated, Ida, when people are in the streets because our brothers and sisters and children don't forget about Tamir Rice, his brother was 12 years old, yes. okay? Being slain by law enforcement every day and there's no justice. That has a direct correlation to who is in office. Why? Because until we change the laws, we get no convictions. Who makes the laws? Lawmakers, United States senators and the Congress. Who, who signs off on those laws? The sitting president. Okay, so so the game is is already set up this way. To answer your question, Ida, what do I tell these people that, with, that come with these really dumb, silly, ignorant, false equivalencies that say, oh, well, you know, I don't think Biden-Harris is going to be any different than Trump-Pence, so I'm going to stay home. You know, it doesn't matter to me. It's all some bull crap. I have very little tolerance for it because I, I can say it politely, which is this narrative. I'm sure you're hearing it. It's out there on the um, social channels. Don't think of this election or any election as a marriage. You're not looking for a perfect candidate. You're not looking for a perfect partner to spend the rest of your life with. Okay. Think of it as, as public transportation. Get on the bus that's going as close as it possibly can to your destination. Because none of them might be going exactly where you're trying to go. And like you already conceded, Neither of these parties is going to be exactly what we need as black people because they were created and funded way before our citizenship even arrived. We're still hell fighting for our full citizenship in this country. So what I would say is if you are, are that convoluted and simple minded that you are going to make false equivalencies as if there is a different choice. Now, listen, in a primary, I, I want to have that conversation all day. I am personally no big, huge fan of Joe Biden. I have problems with a whole lot of things in his record. I have a lot of problems with the way he treated Anita Hill. Remember, we were on that Essence panel, Ida, and, and we talked about it. That's right. That's all fair scrutiny and very fair critique. But don't act like you have another choice come November 3rd. You don't have another choice. Your cho other choice is Donald Trump. And if you are cool with that choice, then you deserve Donald Trump. You deserve his White House. You deserve his Supreme Court. That, that is loaded with far right activist judges that are looking to take away Roe versus Wade, that are looking to take away affirmative action. The hell are probably looking to take away Brown versus Board of Education if you let them. So you deserve all of that if you cannot see the clarity and the significance of this choice. So, and I'm I'm all about um, everyone exercising their freedoms, right? So yeah. when I have conversations with my uh, you know, friends who are, well, I don't have friends who are Republicans at this point, uh, but the, the people- I have who, a couple, I have a couple, you know, I've I, I worked with some, you know, you, we me, just don't agree politically, but you know, okay. 
but black people and brown people, oh, okay. you know, that, that um, because white whiteness is different, right? They, they are oblivious to the realities of what it is to be us, right? Even though as much as they'd like to get in allyship and in proximity to our pain, they don't understand it. It is in our DNA. It's been handed, handed down from generations. But when I look at black and brown people who are telling me that I am, um, I am drinking the Kool-Aid because- oh, yeah. Democrat and the Democrats want to keep me, um, it you know down. And yeah. I, I what, what do you? How do you respond to black and black people who say that? Yeah. Well, I know a lot of black, not a lot. I know a handful of black Republicans. Let me speak precisely. <laughs> so again, on the show tonight, this is so perfect. We're having this conversation. We didn't pre-plan this, but this is exactly all that we're unpacking on the show. So I've got two Republican sisters, both black. I got Tara Sutmeyer, who appears on CNN as a contributor. And then I have, um, yeah, I, I love Tara. And we don't necessarily have a lot of political overlap, but I like her integrity as a black woman. And I like the way she shows up and represents black womanhood in that space. Yes. Then we have uh, Kimberly Clasick. This is a young sister who is running for Baltimore congressional seat. She's actually running for Elijah Cummings' old seat. And I don't know if you've seen, she's got a, an ad. It's gone viral, over 10 million views. and. She is uh, a fan of the president. President, she's a pro-Trump person. She's running on that. And, and she's also running on exactly what you said. The Democrats haven't done anything for black people. Uh, every a major American city under Democrat control is, is, is as worse as any city in the country. So vote for me. Let's change it. Let's not be uh, beholden to the Democratic Party. I, got, I told her, I, I like your argument. Here's why I have a problem. Your indictment of the Democrats I think it's fair. Now tell me about the Republican cities. Tell me about the red states where life for black people is better. And then I'm not gonna tease, I'm not gonna spoil my own show. Watch at nine o'clock to see what this, uh, what this young woman had to say in terms of an answer. I'm watching, I'm gonna watch and so is everybody else. That That's my first question to her. Tell me the red states where black life is better and let's uh, talk about it. Yeah, I can't wait to see that answer. That that alone is going to make me watch. I don't think people realize Trump benefited from the low turnout of black voters, right? And and is counting on it. Bragged it, about it. It was it was reported in Politico and the Hill. He's cut on a hot mic saying it was wonderful. You know how he is. It was wonderful. They 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 you know they they didn't vote like they did for Obama in two thousand eight and two thousand twelve. They didn't come out for Hillary, and it was wonderful. Yeah, exactly. And I and and listen. Uh, you know, when we have these conversations, the country has been struggling for us from the beginning, right? So that's not something that it, uh, people, oh, it can get, it got worse. We want to get back. Like I told you, I'm not interested in going back to any point in history when it comes to what's happening right. for us in this country. I want to only move forward. But when we talk about uh, the deployment of illegal law enforcement or mm. you know, law mm -hmm. enforcement, you know, when we talk about the acts, the, the mailboxes with the locks on them, these people are the people who are always saying that Bernie and AOC and Ilhan are trying to turn this country into a communist country. But the the acts of the, re right. the right are, are far more, uh, you know, associated with communism. Acts. It's fascism. It's, it's fascism on its face. And it, it is. And. Listen, the rhetoric is compelling. That's why we do this work that we do, right? That's why we are in the business of broadcasting, correcting false, dangerous narratives. And all I can do at this point is what I'm doing. All you can do, sis, is what you're doing, continuing to hold the truth, put truth to power, shine a big, bright light on it. 
And I think enough of our people want to receive that truth, are smart enough to decipher and, and realize when they're being lied to, you know, and, and be able to figure it out. And then if they if the vote wasn't so important, if the black vote didn't matter so much, why would they be throwing away um, all those those voting machines? Why would they be making it near, near impossible to vote? Why would they be bragging about low voter turnout? Come on now. Absolutely. Facts. Um, did you watch the RNC? I had to watch some uh, just because it's my job. Um, so I, I saw the speech from Kim Guilfoyle. I saw a big... <laughs> uh, you know, I used to work with her ass, so child. I think did you did you catch the part where Kim, whose mother is was Puerto Rican, she passed away, and Kim talking about she's a, a first generation immigrant. Yes, she didn't. She, I, I actually, um, I addressed her on Twitter. I, I ma'am, Puerto Rico has been a part of these United States of America, and Kimberly knows that. Kimberly is not dumb, although she might sound it. This is a woman who. You know, she doesn't like to tell the rest of her story these days. She got a new attitude and a whole new image. Kimberly was a prosecutor in San Francisco. She was married to Gavin Newsom, who is currently the governor, the Democrat governor of the state of California, one of the more progressive governors in the country. Come on, Kim. She knows better than that. But she's saying that narrative is that it's like you, it's what you said sis, is that inflammatory, cultish, socialist narrative that that base wants to hear. And they keep saying, and Kellyanne Conway's speech praises Trump as a champion of women. No, the best was, how about uh, your boy from Georgia, Vernon Jones, talking about Trump as uh, this civil rights, you know, great connector of the people. Child, it was, it was a lot. It, it was a lot. Circus. And, and I, you know, people are like, well, you know, if you don't like them, then you, you don't have to call it a circus. I said, no, I, I wasn't trying to diss them when you saw kimberly speak it was stepford like it was like it was grandiose it was like her eyes were like you know it was just it looked like a circus and it looked like an exorcism and and i know kim that's what i'm saying kim i've been on tv next to this woman i used to do a weekly segment with her about legal justice she knows when i knew her anyway she knew how to effectively communicate with an audience and I don't know what this is. You know, it's something else going on right now. That's and that's not even politics, right? That's not a policy. That's just the way in which you are showing up in a space. You know, that's crazy. <laughs> so um, I want to talk about Kamala because I um, I went on the Young Turks. Uh, you know, Kamala is not a favorite because mm -hmm. of her past. You know, uh, you know her past her prosecutorial record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. well, prosecutor. So. Yes. That was her job. But um, that was her job. No, that part. That was her job. Okay. It was her job. So, <laughs> yeah. And I, and I find that it's fine that you can hold her accountable. You can question her policies. You can discuss what you have disdain in terms of what she, she's done. But my problem is that she's always held to a higher moral standard as a Black woman. And I just, it drives me crazy. Don't, I mean, I feel like they do that to us all the time. Like we have to be. We have to walk in a way that's uh, worthy of the calling more than our male counterparts and our white counterparts. And so I wanted to think, uh, ask you what you thought about that because it's just, it's so annoying. It's annoying and it's dangerous. I'm gonna tell you again why it actually is deeper than just people think. Because when we carte blanche as a people, black people, brown people, 
uh, people that are, are champions of social justice. If we say we are going to carte blanche disqualify anybody that's ever worked in that level of justice, prosecutors, carte blanche, you're automatically disqualified from advancing causes for social justice. We do ourselves a grave disservice because then you have a generation, Ida, where, um, Ida, where black and brown folks don't want to go into those prosecutor roles for fear of being seen as a sellout, problematic, uh, have their black card taken away. And as a criminal defense lawyer, that's a huge problem for me and my clients because I need black and brown people over there as prosecutors. I need that. They are the most important, powerful people in the courtroom, often more powerful than the judges. So when we start making it an unsafe place for our people to be district attorneys or uh, state attorney generals or department of justice heads, it's a huge problem. And you're right about the sexism because for as much as we want to indict and condemn Kamala for certain things she did while she was uh, San Francisco district attorney and then eventually California uh, uh, attorney general, we don't, we, we rock hard with Eric Holder. And I love Eric Holder. I think he was a fantastic attorney general to the United States of America under Barack Obama, but he was also a prosecutor and people don't ever have a problem with that coming from him. And, and we know the reason why it's, it's, it's a very unfair gender thing that we do and it's called sexism. So the RNC ignored uh, the violence that is happening in Kenosha. They, they did not address any of the, um, the police brutality that we've been talking about for decades because it's really not a 2020 thing. It's not a George Floyd thing. Not it's at a all. Thing, a Neville Johnson thing, a Sandra a Sean Be A Sean Bell thing, <laughs> you know, a Rodney King thing. Yes, yeah. it's been going on for a long time. And I, I think that that speaks to what they think about the black vote, right? And what mm -hmm. they, I mean, I mean, they brag about the black votes not turning up and, and the bragging is because they don't feel like they matter, right? It doesn't matter because they're not turning up. Um, I thought that that was very telling. And, you know, when we talk about defunding the police, I would love for you to really speak to that because um, when you say defund the police, that they have hijacked that narrative and now telling people that that means they want to get it demolish the police get rid of the police and what they don't understand is that it it is really about it's about restructuring and you know uh, redirecting because we have a serious problem in this country with law enforcement with regards to black and brown people and so right. I, I would love for you to speak to that from the perspective of someone who has a criminal justice background, because I'm just the, the comedian who's fascinated by social issues and wants to use my voice for it. But you actually have studied this. And I would love to hear um, you explain to people what defunding the police means and why it is imperative at this moment that we address this, because the deaths have gone up. They have. Okay. So when we say defund, when people say defund the police, because I actually don't say the words defund the police. I'm going to tell you why. In our, in our work as, as, as broadcasters and working in media, we know words matter, right? The way in which you communicate the messaging is paramount. So I know what is meant when they say defund the police. You know what is meant when they say defund the police. What they mean is uh, basically reallocating parts of the city or state's budget 
to take some of the millions, or in the case of New York City, billions of dollars that go towards policing, which is oftentimes inclusive of riot gear, military equipment, all kinds of things that really lead to an over-militarized police that shows up in a very combative posture. You go into neighborhoods and communities as if they are war zones when they are neighborhoods. Okay, so you want to take some of that money and what do you want to do with it? You want to redistribute, 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 redistribute it. There we go. Redistribute it. Two, after school programs, schools, um, mental health community organizations, all t- uh, healthcare units, all types of things that communities really need, domestic violence shelters, things that really make a difference in terms of the overall well-being and safety of a community. That's what's meant by the phrase. But I've actually never been a fan of the, fa- of the phrase defund the police because we've got to do this, spend too much time explaining what it means when we really need to be spending time implementing the policy. So I always really refer to it, I think more accurately, which is the redistribution of police funds to community spaces. Thank you for that. That I mean, it, it's important because, you know, there are people who are so busy working that they don't have time to read. Right. Um, you know, they work they they work at a towel mill or they work at a factory and they didn't go to college and they don't have a grasp on this information. So the, the most of the information that they're getting is from social media and it's from, you know, the the networks that have now been started politicizing all of the issues. I just think it's important for people to give, as as uh, Malcolm X used to say, you know, give it to me like you give it to a a, a man on the street, so that yeah. everybody can understand. You got to say it plain, right? Because exactly that. Some people are busy; they're raising kids, they're going to two and three jobs. Uh, and when you say defund the police, what they're like, well, hell, we know they kill us, but damn, if 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 somebody breaks into my house, I do want the police to come. If 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 my partner beats me up, I need the police to come. If I'm stroking out, you know, whatever it is. So we're not saying get rid of police in their entirety. The, the call, the mandate is to redistribute those funds in, pol- in community spaces that make the necessity for some of this hypervigilant policing go away. It's really a win-win. Right. And that's how it needs to be talked about, though. I do think the messaging needs to be improved, to be, to be candid. Yeah, and because when it's not, the opposition takes hold of it and then they... Yep redefine it and then they use it and then they're right Mm -hmm. on that side who don't have an education and don't have the benefit of understanding are just like oh they're trying to take our cops away they want this to be right right. Um, they uh, so tucker carlson um you know took me out with that one go ahead so are we really surprised that looting and arson accelerated to murder? How shocked are we that a 17-year-old, that 17-year-olds with rifles decided they had to maintain order when no one else would? The justification of that young man. Well, no, we're not surprised at all. And see, this is where, for me, at Fox News, it's no secret. I worked at Fox News for four years, having just this kind of debate with people just like Tucker Carlson and Bill O'Reilly and all the rest of them, right? Doing the work of correcting false narratives in a very hostile terrain, and I, I kind of it's kind of like prison. I feel like I did my bid, okay? So for me, I gotta be Candace's. I don't even really want to give Tucker's ass no energy. I really don't. Like people call my phone rings off the hook from all these other net cable networks. Can you come on and talk about what Laura Ingram said? Can you come on and talk about what took? Nah, 
because I'm too busy trying to tell my people what they need to know. I love it. I, I mean, yeah. I love it because I think that, I, and so I'm not looking for sound bites. I'm looking- No, I know. No, I know you're not doing that. Yeah. Genuinely what you think, because like I said earlier, I'm not doing any more um, all lives matter, black lives matter analogies. I'm right. trying to uh, explain to somebody why my son should be able to go to the store and come back without me being worried that something is going to happen, you know? And that's yeah. the reality that I deal with every single day. And so I'm, I don't want to have these conversations. I went to Politicon. I, I encountered a lot of the people. They were chanting, build that wall to me. I'm from Puerto Rico. Mm. So I, I'm just like, you know, I feel- Are you going to put the wall around the island? <laughs> And it's like, I'm not, it's like, you know, you're having a conversation with people who are not worthy of your breath and that. That's it. That's it, sis. Where it's just like you said, if you, if you acting like, cause that's what you're doing. You acting like you don't understand what black lives matter means. Yeah. I'm not even about to sit up here and use my good strengths, energy, and intelligence to explain it to you because you're playing. That's you're playing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am a, a particularly excited about the fact that the Bucks um, decided not to have their game. And then the Brewers followed suit. And I, I, you know, I speak about this all the time because at the, at the end of the day, for me, this is about the village and how we're going to make, we're going to make the world better for all of us. And all of us are, are not going to, you know, do not live in the best neighborhood. So I believe in these grassroots movements and really teaching and going and empowering people through economics I don't think people sometimes don't really understand that how powerful we are economically in the country and not just basketball players. I mean, mm -mm. every teenager I know, black and brown has an iPhone. And so we put a lot of dollars into this economy and it is important for people to take a stand. And, and people say to me, well, why do I have to take a stand? And I'm like, because you look like this. Because mm. You, you are a representation. If you are our representation of success and getting out of the hood, then why do you stop being our representation when they are, they are murdering us? Yeah. And sadly, you know, I had this debate on state of the culture with uh, my sister, Remy Ma, because, you know, Remy, at least at the time, took the, we were talking about, it was in the context that we were talking about the, the, um, the last dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. Now, I went to Chapel Hill, you know, Michael Jordan's probably the most famous Tar Heel ever. He is, for sure. But my issue with the man is, you the GOAT as far as basketball is concerned. To me, it's no questions asked. I'm a huge basketball fan. But for you to have had the biggest platform in the world, not the country, the world, you had the biggest global platform in the world, and at the height of your career, you chose not to engage in any way that advanced the social positioning or economic positioning of your people, um, even when specifically asked by his own mama to endorse Harvey Gantt in the 1996, I believe, U.S. Senate race against pretty much a Klansman, which is um, Jesse Helms, Michael Jordan said, nah, I'm good. And, and I have a problem with that, Ida. You know, and then you compare it to the opposite in LeBron James, a man that could be doing a whole lot of things with his time and money, but consistently shows up, he gets it right. I tweeted last night, when we see LeBron James, sis, we see a man who fully understands his power. He fully understands the, the, the autonomy and the capacity in which he gets to move in this space. And as LeBron James goes, so goes the NBA. And as the NBA goes, so, so goes billions of dollars. And when billions of dollars move, that's when change happens.
absolutely. And 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 we have to continue to remember that we cannot fund our own oppression. We have to know where we're dollars. You know, we say it again. <laughs> yes, we invest in our own oppression. We don't know. We're supporting people. You know, and. and I wanted to get into local politics a little bit because we put so much on the, the national election of the presidential election. And I mm-hmm. think that it's so important to know who you from a criminal justice background, how important it is to vote for your sheriff, for the chief of police, for the the school board, uh, you know, superintendent. Totally. Because all of this stuff. Go ahead. No, that, that you're, you're laying it out. Superintendent, school board, district attorney. There's that important prosec- local prosecutor role. The people that are deciding whether or not, you know, you're, you're going to get a felony charge or a misdemeanor charge or you're eligible for probation or you're not. Those are often elected officials. The judges often elected at the local level. So there's you need to vote in the local elections. There's that part. But I'm going to go further. And I've been talking about it and it's not sexy. But until we get it. I'm going to know we're not serious about really having political power in this country, Ida. And that is putting our money into politics. Okay. Our counterparts, white people, they put money into politics, often in the form of unions. That's a massive way a lot of them do it. And then there's a lot of other PAC organizations that do the same thing. So when you want to know why Planned Parenthood never wonders if they're going to get their billions of dollars from the government. The NRA never is worried about getting their money from the government. Israel, they never worry about getting their money from the government. It's because their constituencies, the people whose interests those are, that, that are there, put money into the candidates at the entry point. So it's not just showing up to vote. That's the cherry on the cake. That's the icing on the sun, uh, the icing on the cake, the cherry on the sundae. We as black people need to really start, and there's the collective pack if you're interested, um, and there's other black packs out there pooling our money, our resources and funding candidates from the ground up. Because when we make you, we pretty much own you and we can tell you what we need your policies to look like that in, that implement and empower our interests. That's really how politics are played. Yeah. And if you look at the um, the independent progressives that have been entering and winning, when you think about the AOC and the Cori Bushes and Jamal uh, Bowen right here in New York. Mm-hmm in New York, those are a big win for the people because they are operating with progressive policies in mind. And even though, you know, a lot of liberal white people have, you know, participated in this progressive movement, they don't realize that progressivism is built on the backs of black people because we are the ones who have been in demand of progress in this country and that it is directly affects us. Um, I wanted to ask you, what is what are some of the things that we can demand of this Democratic Party prior to November that are realistic for us in terms of to alleviate the angst that some people have that once they get in office, that they are going to uh, abandon black people in this country? Yep, we unpacked that tonight's episode too. What is the black policy agenda, right? We uh, Ice Cube and and Ti and Puff. A lot of people have been saying, "What's in it for black people?" You know, if it ain't if it ain't for black folks, we ain't. I, I get it. I like it, but I'm t- I think we got it backwards. If we're waiting on them, whether it's Joe Biden or for that matter even Kamala Harris or any of these candidates to tell us what we need politically. That's backwards, Ida. That was never done historically. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the rest of the civil rights leaders uh, didn't sit around and wait 
for LBJ to tell, oh, Dr. King, uh, this is what I drew up for you and the Blacks. Nah, he went in, Dr. King and company went in with their agenda. Lyndon, we want voting rights. We want civil rights. We want uh, an end to discrimination as it relates to employment and housing. They went in with a created black agenda and that's how it was implemented and, and eventually passed. Mm -hmm. It's time for us to do the same thing. Those, those terms, I would say of that negotiation are up. They've been up and that's why the country looks the way it looks. So now it's time to renegotiate. So I asked all my guests tonight, Ida, what are, if, oh, if we only got three things, because I think that's one place that we're, we're struggling. We're trying to do too much to, at the same time. A lot, when you look at people that are politically effective, it's very narrow. They're singular issue, maybe two, maybe three at the most. So what are the three things that Black America wants to ask for policy-wise? And the consensus was education, economic empowerment by way of home ownership and, and a few other specifics, and reforming criminal justice specifically as it relates to use of deadly force and ending qualified immunity. Um, there's a few others that are out there, but those were the those, those have the highest number of votes. The, the, yeah, the, there are so many things that I've learned in the last couple of months that I did not know. For example, that in some jurisdictions, the sheriff can, can double as coroner or medical examiner, um, which is can rule for cause of deaths. And that can be problematic, like in a case like Sandra Bland, who was ruled a suicide and we didn't get a chance for the benefit of a real investigation. Um, one of the- that, uh, small town, that small town justice is often no justice at all. And I just want people to, to be, keep your eyes open to that. Seriously, that's a very important point you're making, Ida. So one of our, um, our viewers wants to know about the young man who uh, murdered, uh, assassinated the three or shot the three people at, that he's a minor. So who is responsible for him? Um, is he held uh, as an adult? Is he, will he be charged? Yeah, he's being tried as an adult. Yeah, I just read that. That was breaking news this afternoon. So while he is 17 and technically when, so, so, so let me say it very plainly. When we think about law and age, you can't think about it as simply as what we think of to buy cigarettes or alcohol, you know, where that age of, 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 of adulthood is 18. The law doesn't always see it that way. Two things. Number one, in the states of North Carolina and New York, when you were 16 or under, that was the only time you were a juvenile. Seven, 17 on up, you were always treated as an adult. And, and, and that just changed with the raise the age legislation that just recently passed. So 17 is definitely a bubble age. And that what happens is you go before a judge and a judge will decide whose court you will be in, juvenile or adult, based on the crime, based on the facts that, that the district attorney presents at the time, and then they'll make an evaluation. And in the case of, of this young man that murdered, killed um, those two individuals and, and, and wounded another in the wake of those protests, he's being tried as an adult. Good. I mean, so many young black men have been tried as adults. Um, exactly. Lesser <laughs> charges. So I I've think seen, I've seen 16 year old boys out in North Carolina when I was uh, practicing. I mean, they were babies, really. And that, that's not to strip them of their accountability. It's just that their life experience, I'm talking about their frontal lobes hadn't even fully formed yet. This is science, right. you know, and now they're spending the rest of their lives in jail. They've, I've even seen 17 year olds be up for the death penalty. Wow. Gruesome crimes indeed. But isn't our justice system supposed to be about rehabilitation? 
The punitive part is actually supposed to be secondary. You gotta pay attention to these things. Um, and okay, so I know um, I, I wanted to ask you this because this is the battle that I've, I've had. Social media can be so toxic. And when you are paying attention to what's happening in, in the climate right now, there are constant witch hunts going all over on all over the place. When black black people are held to a higher standard morally, that is not a, a myth. That is a reality. Um, and it just seems like sometimes you feel like you can't win. Right. Because. Mm. We, we're not allowed a spectrum, right? So it's either you 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 have to be a Democrat, you you have to do this, you have to do that. I oftentimes, you know, I had Tara Setmeyer on the show, and then people criticized me for giving her a platform and saying, you know, you're normalizing this behavior by having her on. And I'm like, no, I'm giving a black woman a voice to express where she is on our spectrum because she deserves that. Absolutely. Um, so and so. Do you come under fire? Do you feel like you come under fire for your political views often? And how do you deal with that? Because I, I, it's so exhausting. It's like we're not supposed to all be exactly the same, right? We all have different experiences. We all come from different places and we think differently. But it's like, I, I you know, the being called a sellout for me is the, is the trigger for me because I'm like, mm -hmm. you white supremacists come for me on a daily basis. Right. They don't I have to smile because it's the story of my life. You know what I mean? Like back when, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. When I say this, I mean doing this work, speaking about politics as a political and legal analyst, as a host. I'm coming up on 10 years. I actually started out there in LA on KFI AM 640, which is a conservative talk radio station. So I, I, I must be a glutton for punishment. I, I started my career uh, being the, the voice of dissension. Maybe, and maybe that's the lawyer in me, frankly, right? That I, I like being the, the, the dissentive voice, the disruptive voice, because I believe that in disruption lies the opportunity for growth, change, and power. But it does suck. You're called a lot of names. You're sent a lot of hate mail. Um, you're, you're, you're trolled relentlessly. Uh, I used to, I started, you know, on, on Young Turks years ago with Jank and, and the crew out there. And you know, that's a very progressive, very far left platform. Those are not my politics, you know, and yeah, people felt a way about it. You know, I'm, I'm a pragmatist, you know, I'm a moderate, deal with it or don't. I really don't give a damn. What I know is I am doing the work that I believe that I am spiritually convicted around. Actually, this is spiritual work for me, sis, you know, and and it's um, it's important for me to always show up authentically, to always show up in the, what I believe, what I've determined based on my experience and expertise is in the best interest of my people. Now, reasonable minds can disagree about what that looks like. And that's what I hear you speaking to, Ida, is that we have gotten as a society, and it's not new, it's not new. We, we might be new in these some of these spaces because of our career paths, but this, this has been going on for generations where, where people don't even allow, allow the space for reasonable disagreement. But I do want to make this point. It's the difference between being reasonably disagreeable around politics and policy. And because I think Baldwin says, I can I can respect and disagree with you if it's politics. I cannot disagree with you if it is about the, the right for me to exist as a free individual in this society. Right. And that's what we're talking, that's what Trumpism is about. So that's why I can't really go there with a lot of these Trump people. And, it, and I can talk to a Republican all day long. We can disagree. We can debate. I've done it professionally for years. But but Trump is not talking about conservatism. He's not even a conservative president. This is not about fiscal conservatism 
or federalism. This is about preserving the innate intrinsic value of white mediocrity in this country. That's it. And I will not play games with you about that. So there, there, there that is. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> so yeah. your show airs at nine. And yeah. um, I would love for people to know um, how they can keep in touch with you, follow you. They're saying they love you. So they've already been, a lot of them have been following you, but. Oh, I love your audience. And, and it's so funny because after we did that Essence panel together, Ida, then I started following you and I saw that we had so many mutual friends and so much love and overlap. And I don't think that's an accident. I think when, when we are in these spaces, in the trenches, so to speak, doing this work, uh, it's important to have alignment, to have sisterhood, and to create and amplify one another. So I want to thank you for inviting me on your platform and allowing me to, to share my truth uh, here on Truth Serum. I love that name, by the way. And folks can find me on the gram, Facebook, in LinkedIn even, and of course, uh, Twitter, at Ebony, E-B-O-N-I-K Williams. So thank you. Revolt yes. Black News tonight at nine. Don't miss it. It should be very good. Yeah, I want to see that. Um, I'm looking forward to it. And I feel the same way about you. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I'm a stand-up comedian. So it's it, the my dream, like when I did my, I taped my, my Tiffany Haddish Stay Ready special, the audience was filled with people that were, you know, comedy lovers, as well as people who watch the Young Turks, people who watch, you know, who know me from other places. And so for me, I look forward to seeing all of y'all, you know, you and yeah. all my folks when I tape this uh, next special in New York, because um, it takes a village. And I don't think- Absolutely. And I love to laugh. So like I'm a bear, my work is so serious. So like when I go to the comedy show, I got cussed out when I was at the Dave Chappelle show two years ago. Cause I was like, ha ha, like knocking the back of the girl's chair in front of me. And she was like, girl, what? Like, I'm like that person at the comedy show, loud, obnoxious laughter. Cause this shit is so heavy since you just got to laugh. Like you got to release, you got to yeah. release. So I thank you for what you do. I really do. Thank you. So thank you so much for being here. Um, and, and the last thing I'm going to ask you is about the uprisings. I don't call them riots. I call them. They're not. They're not. Mm -hmm. I call them uprisings. And every time I see people of color um, unite and, and find some solidarity and say, we coming for what's ours, I don't feel, uh, I, I don't get, you know, it doesn't bother me. Um, I do want to see safety and a better world for all of us. And I just feel like until it is available to all of us, everyone has to be uncomfortable. So I wanted to ask you what you thought about that, because um, I'm going to close out with a Martin Luther King um, Jr. Uh, speaking on riots. And I just wanted, wanted to hear your words and I wanted to you know, go out with your words. My thoughts on the uprising being um, called riots or whatever is simply this, sis. I am not about to sit up here and get drawn into a distracting conversation, litigating the merits of a, of, of a people that are unheard. Mm -hmm. And that is what we are seeing. We're seeing a people that are unheard. And here's the other part. We all exist as citizens in, a, in any space, in a country, this one is, is America, under what should be a social contract. And in that social contract should be a meeting of the minds and some agreement. You agree to respect my life, my liberty, and, and my existence, and I agree to give you the space to respect yours in turn. Well, there's a part of this country that has breached its obligation to black Americans by way of that social contract, Ida. And because we're in breach, 
we are in the climate that we are in. And until that breach is rectified and remedied, this will continue. Black Lives Matter. <laughs> and that's how we will close it. All right. Thank you so much for being here, sis. I love you. And I continue I love you. to uh, send, commission the angels to watch over you daily because you are doing the work. So thank you. Thank you, sis. Have a blessed one. You too. Bye. This is a place, a safe space where we can have honest conversation, explore nuance and explore our spectrum as people of color and black people and hear all of the voices when it comes. Um, so I want to say that um, I'm excited about our next guest as well. He is a, a contributor on the Fox Network, but he also has his own radio show and um he is a well nationally syndicated liberal talk show host is what they call him, but I call him Richard Fowler. So uh, <laughs> uh, welcome Richard Fowler to the show. <laughs> Ada, how are you? Good. They call us all kinds of things. So oh um, yeah, I, I feel like buttoned up. I gotta like unbutton. You know, I'm talking to Ada Rodriguez, honey. I gotta unbutton. You know. <laughs> yes. I, um. So first of all, it's Ida. Ida. I listen. I am I am not beyond reproach. So you know the mom would say you better get her name right. So no, no, it's okay. No, you know what? I let a lot of people call me Ada for a long time because I grew up in America. And before my grandmother passed away, she was like, That's my name. And I need you to have them put some respect on my name. Your name is Ida Rodriguez. So I started correcting people, but it's been very uncomfortable. So I'm just now And it's, and it's funny that you say that, right? Because it's funny you say that because my now folks who don't know, I'm from Jamaican heritage. My grandparents, my grandfather is from Costa Rica and his sister's name is Ida. Um, so uh, I should have gotten that right. <laughs> um, so it's what really we... interesting. So if you meet my if you meet if you meet my grandfather, he's darker than me, has slick back hair, and he talks patwa perfectly, and he also speaks fluent Spanish. Um, God rest his soul, he's in heaven now, but it's the bizarrest thing when I met it. Like when I got going up with my grandfather, he would talk to you in Patua. He'd be in the kitchen hanging out. Next thing you know, he speaks fluent Spanish. It was totally dope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we come from all over the world because you know, first yeah. of all, black divine and black is is global. You know, and I don't it think is. people Wakanda is is was too limited for me in terms of what blackness is. <laughs> so it's all over, we're all over the place. <laughs> yeah. How are you? How you doing? You know, I got to tell you, I am, I got to say, I am blessed. I am very blessed to be in the land of the living, number one. Uh, and number two, I'm blessed to be one, two, talking to you. And number three, I, I'm just blessed to be black, right? I mean, I don't think we spend enough time just to celebrate um, each other and celebrate um, how far we've come. I know it seems like we have a tough road to hoe and there's a tough road ahead and we have a lot to fight for. But yesterday, I got to tell you, while yesterday was a very, like, it was a tough day, it was also a very inspiring day to see those brothers uh, in the NBA bubble down there. So, you know what? We're tired. If you're not going, if you're not going to listen, like we were at first, we, we were sending quiet messages. We had our Black Lives Matter shirts on. We kneeled for the national anthem. We have Black Lives Matter painted on the courts. We're being very quiet. Every time we did an interview, we pushed it back to social justice. But that wasn't enough. You don't wanna you don't wanna respect black bodies, but you want black bodies to entertain you. But guess what? These black bodies are walking off the court. And that made me really proud. Um yeah. to say, like, yeah, we had no, we we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. So you know what? We're not playing no more. That was dope. I love it. You know, I people um 
people sometimes people have a problem with me and they think that I am um, too uh, aggressive or they're saying they say I'm too militant and too revolutionary. And I'll say this, you know, I, I don't think there's anything more militant and radical than trying to oppress a people, you know, to constantly beat people. And even with that, there are some people who think that I'm still not militant and aggressive enough. You have to operate in a space that is, you know, that a lot of people feel is a dark space to operate in. And when I say that, I say Fox News. Being a black man, um, people, you know, feel that participating in anything that has to do with Fox News is normalizing them. And um, I, I feel like we have to have our agents in all spaces because we cannot allow them to own the narrative about who we are anywhere, right? Which is why I do this. How do you, how does it feel for you? Um, and how are you received because you are, um, you know, a contributor to the Fox network? Um, and, and, and please, you know, share with me how you feel about that and why is it important for you to be there? Listen, man, I grew up in the church, right? And I, growing up in the church, and I, I'll, I'll acknowledge and admit, I haven't been in church in a minute. Um, and there's reasons for that. But one thing I knew growing up in the church, my mom um, is still, still like, I'm, my mom's at church almost every day and she prays for me. And I, that's the only reason why I'm still alive, to be frank with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, she, she talked like the, the Bible talks about like preaching the gospel to everybody. Everybody deserves to get the gospel, uh, and that's what I believe, right? And I don't think it's radical. I don't think my my political ideology is radical. The ideal that every kid should go to a high quality neighborhood public school is not radical to me. The ideal that if you're sick, uh, you should be able to go to the doctor and not worry about the bill that's not radical to me. The ideal that every neighborhood should be rich with a with a grocery store that has fresh vegetables in it, that's not radical to me. Um, and that's what I go on the network and I, and I, you know, I fight about, right. And I'm willing to take anybody on about basic things. Like I, and I, and I think that's, so, I think part of the, I think part of the problem that we have for me personally as progressives is we think some of our ideals are radical and they're really not right. It, it, I think it's it, what's radical is telling me that I can't, marry my lover because you find it you think it's wrong what's radical to me is you telling a woman when she's behind closed with her doctor what needs to happen in that room that to me it seems to be radical and supposed to be unimaginable like that seems to be crazy to me i think what i'm asking for is just basics i want if, if you if the constitution actually ascribes for us to have life liberty and the pursuit of happiness I just want every American to be able to have that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And for far too many Americans, the reality is they have they, they have life and they have life barely because at every turn and every corner, that life is limited somehow. Um, and I think that is what I fight for. So, I mean, I love what I do. Um, I, I, there's some days that are tougher than others. Mm -hmm. um, I will say this, I think, you know, I respect all my colleagues. I disagree with them vehemently on a lot of the issues, um, but my job is to go there and to do the good fight and to, to be true, to, to speak truth, truth the president. I, know there's, I think the weirdest thing about the job is to know that there's actual moments when you know the president's watching. Um, and that's the weirdest part. Like I've literally been on set and the president's tweeting about my segment and that's the weirdest part of the job. But hell, if he's listening, hopefully I'm speaking some truth to him in the same, at the same moment. Yeah, right. Do you... Uh would you say that you work with people, um, despite your differences in uh, ideologies, 
do you believe that they're good human beings? That's a good question. Um, so look, I, I'll be real and 100 about it. So I got, and I tell my story because I think the story is important, right? Like how I got, how I became a contributor at Fox has everything to do with Megyn Kelly. Like Megyn Kelly was going to primetime network, primetime television. She needed a really good, de she needed a democratic foil. Uh, somebody she can debate with every night. Me and her hit it off. And she really went, she fought, she fought for me. Um, when I was thinking, when I thought I'd like, when there was moments that I thought that, you know, maybe or there, I didn't have a career at Fox. Maybe Fox wasn't the place for me. Maybe I should try other networks. And Megan Kelly was like, no, I think you belong here. I think you need to be here and I'm going to fight for you to be here. And she did just that. Um, and so, you know, I think there's people who have different views on Megyn Kelly. There's a lot of things that she said that I disagree with vehemently. Um, but that's how I got here. Uh, that's how I came to television. That's why I have this career. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's things that, there's definitely things that I disagree with them on. There, there, there's, we I'm literally on the channel to debate um, them. And, and I think we have, I think there's a clear division between our, the, our news division and our, and our opinion division. And I think that division is very clear. Um, and you know, there's that, but like for me, I've never been editorialized at the channel. Nobody tells me what to say and when to say it. I speak my truth. And if y'all don't like it, y'all don't like it. That's cool. <laughs> Can you, um, for the benefit of our audience, uh, explain to people what that means. The opinion, the opinion based, sure. um, Terry versus the actual journalists on the network. Cause I don't think a lot of people understand that some of those people are, um, they are television personalities versus being actual journalists. Sure. And I think this goes for all the networks, right? So it's, I think it's, a, it's something that folks have to understand that there is a certain, and it's almost divisions are usually, they're usually done by time, right? But uh, most networks, there's some folks on the network that they are literally their, they are news, they're journalists, where their job is to provide fair and balanced coverage, whether it's on CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News Channel. And then there are other folks that their shows are opinion-driven shows. Their shows are opinion-driven. Their job is to, yes, they're supposed to, they're supposed to sort of give you the facts, but those facts come from an opinion-driven perspective. So case in point, Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow is just as much opinion as Sean Hannity. Now, is there one person? person's opinion between those two that I agree with? Yes, but they're both opinion-based shows where Rachel Maddow is giving you her opinion based on the news and Sean Hannity is giving you his opinion based on the news. And so at Fox, there's a clear division between opinion, the opinion shows and the opinion like teams and the teams that do news coverage. Um, and I think they're, that they really are hard on making a distinction between those two things. And if you notice that in our, in our coverage, uh, when we cover conventions, when we cover... Any, any sort of breaking news, you know, like you see our two, our news anchors cover that. Uh, and they're usually, they're surrounded by commentators like myself and Donna Brazil and Juan Williams, who are Democrats. Um, and they're with, and Carl Rowe, people who provide commentary, but they're anchored by news, comment, news anchors. And then followed by that, they're opinion anchors that opinionate on the news, if that makes any sense. That does make sense. And, and I think it's important for people to understand that because a lot of times people go to the fight armed with information that's, that is full of someone else's opinion. And they don't realize that that is not actual news. It's not actual journalism. Yeah. Right. And they, they don't realize that they're just they're just uh, regurgitating someone else's ideology that is not necessarily based on facts and, and, and it's opinion based. Of course. And every channel, and I think it's important to know that every channel has opinions. Absolutely. I mean, 
when you watch Don Lemon, who's a colleague and a friend of mine, Don Lemon's monologue at the open of his show, that's his opinion. He's like, here is the news. And based on this news, I'm making these opinions, which are mine. They're not based, they, some of them are loosely based on facts. This is how I feel about the news, that uh, the news of the day. And I think it's important to understand that for a lot of cable news, because cable news is driven by ratings, it's driven by advertisers, and we know that, you know, boombastic opinions get more eyeballs. And so but all the channels has shifted to this, this sort of weird balance between news and opinion. Um, um, and Fox, I think, has led the way on that. And there there definitely are right-leaning opinions on the channel. Um, but these are not opinions that are opinions ascribed to me because I don't believe in any of them. Um, and I vehemently disagree with most of the things that many of the opinion anchors say. But my job is not, like, that's not my job. My job is to come on the channel and tell you how I feel. And that's what I do every day. Right. So I got to ask you because you keep saying you, you vehemently um, disagree with most of the things that they say. What are some of the things you agree with uh, on with those with some of the people that you work with? What are some of the issues where you agree with them? Um, <laughs> I love <your> face. You <laughs> uh, so as far as listen, I think for I mean, I won't speak to any. I think we have some amazing we have some amazing anchors on our channel. Right. So you have folks like Harris Faulkner um, and Harris Faulkner and. Um, now Joy Reid are the only two women that have daily shows on cable news that are women of color, right? Period. Um, and so I think they're very dope. They are both anchors and journalists that cover the news of the day. Uh, and so I think that's amazing. Um, now, as far as my colleague Tucker Carlson goes, I disagree with Tucker on pretty much everything. <laughs> um, maybe I agree with Tucker that America is a good country. No, there you go. That's that's fair. Um, um, so, are we really surprised that looting and arson accelerated to murder? How shocked shocked are we that seventeen year olds with rifles decided they had to maintain order when no one else would? So when I when I hear that, I'm thinking one, he is also agreeing with Black Lives Matter that law enforcement isn't doing their job because if you're saying no one is doing their job, then who are you talking about? Because it is not the job of the citizens to maintain order, right? Um, but but we know that that's not what he meant when he said that, right? So what he was he was trying to indicate was that the the uprisings are out of order and that somebody had to do it. Um, you know. How do you, I, I would love to hear your take on what's happening in Kenosha, what, what is happening as a result of this. You have to look at it from the perspective, from a journalistic perspective. Uh, but we, you also look at it from the perspective of a black man, which you cannot abandon no matter what you do, because it's just part of it's, it's who you are. So when we have these conversations, um, I, I would love to hear your take on this because the person who was shot is a, is more of a reflection of you than it is of Tucker. So you have an even more personal opinion about this. It's become pretty, you know, it's something that's been going on for so long and it's so common. Um, you know, you are on Fox News and I think people need to understand that everybody on Fox News do not, they don't think that exactly the same way. And so you give, no. a, voice, <laughs> you give a voice to the people, people who that the people don't know exist on that network. No, absolutely. And, and I think to start, you have to like cause to really sort of analyze this. And I've been spending a lot of time really thinking about 
Because you think about what happened to this young man, Mr. Blake, right? And you think about how that all plays with the week of news and the RNC, the Republican National Convention, and Donald Trump sort of spewing this craziness around criminal justice reform. And so where I, I want to start there, right? So think about this, right? So criminal justice reform, which means when, when Donald Trump signed the First Step Act, he basically said that there was something broken in our criminal justice system. Now, when you say the criminal justice system, it, you, Donald Trump wants you to believe that it's only the prison part. But people forget that the criminal justice system is a system. And a system means you have many things that make up a system, right? And so you have the courts, you have the prisons, you have prisoner reentry and on parole and all that part. But you also have the most critical part of the criminal justice system, which is how do criminals get into the criminal justice system to begin with? Law enforcement. And so for once, the, when, when the president of the United States signs a criminal justice reform bill, the First Step Act, and doesn't acknowledge that the system is broken, you, you, when he signs a law, he acknowledges the system is broken. And so he can't really see, the president really is a hypocrite here because he can't speak out of both sides of his mouth, saying that I passed this law and I fixed the system, but the system is still broken. And the, the place the system is broken is law enforcement. Now, I'm not saying that you know, all like that all police are bad. I'm saying the system that police operate in are broken. And, and, I, and when I say that, let me be very, very, very clear, right? And, 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 and you see it in all these cases, whether it's the case that we just saw with Mr. Blake, whether it was the case in Aurora where these where women were dragged out of their car and arrested while their children were in the vehicle and they were like, oops, sorry, we made a mistake or whether it, these cases, there's so many names and so many faces of people of color that we can attach to these cases. And I'll go one step further, whether it be the laws in Arizona where they are asking Latinas and Latinos to show them their papers to, uh, for a traffic stop or for a broken taillight. It's all part of the same broken system. And in this broken system, what ends up happening is people of color are over-policed and, and when they're over-policed, there's use of excessive force, right? There, and, and let me be very clear, because if you look at all the recent polling done in communities of color, no, pe black people aren't, black people and Latinx folks and Latinas and Latinos aren't anti-police. They actually appreciate police presence in their community. But one in five African-Americans say that the police don't, only one in five think that the police treat them with courtesy and respect when they engage with them which means the relationship between police and communities of color are completely broken, right? In white neighborhoods, you get law and order, right? Law, kids are playing in the streets, the cops are, are throwing the football, you have officer friendly in black communities, the officers are unfriendly, and I'm not talking about all officers, I'm making a generalization based on these cases that you see here, and the responses are not the same, and you see it happening all across the country. I give you the, this, like what happened in Michigan during the shutdown. During the shutdown in Michigan, white men showed up to the Capitol with guns. The police officers have riot gear on. They didn't have tear gas. They were just, you know, standing there and they were looking at the men with guns like nothing was wrong. But yet when peaceful protesters who are un all, all unarmed show up to say Black Lives Matter, they're tear gas. That means there's something wrong with the system and we have to reform the entire system and to reform the entire system we have to acknowledge that all americans want public safety in their community they want their communities to be safe they want their community communities to be welcoming 
Nobody, black, white, yellow, purple, green, wants drug dealers on their corner. Nobody wants murderers in their community. So don't, but I think there's this false notion and ideology out here that in black communities, like we want to sort of like harbor criminals and we don't want any police and we want to abolish the police. No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is instead of the police department buying riot gear and buying tanks and buying weapons from the Pentagon, we would rather spend that money in other places where we need support. We need guidance counselors in our school. And the statistics bear that out. Look at the state of Texas, uh, Ida. In the state of Texas, there's 14 million students that don't have access to a social worker, that don't have access to a school psychiatrist, that don't have access to a school nurse, but all 14 million of those young people have a school resource officer in their school. So ask yourself, what's more important for these young people? to have a police officer there or to have a school nurse, a, a social worker or a psychologist there. And most Americans would say, well, if I think they might need a school nurse or a school counselor or a social worker, that might be more beneficial to their learning, right? And I think that's the argument that we're trying to make. And what you're actually hearing Republicans say is, oh, we want to defund, they just want to defund the police. They want to abolish police. No, we just want the police to work as good for us as they work for them. And I think that, and that is what's become sick and twisted to me when you hear Republicans say, oh, they just want to defund them. I'm like, no, if the police work in your neighborhood, what you guys have over there, that's what we want over here. Simply put, same thing for the schools. The schools over there, the public schools over there that work perfectly, just bring them over here so they work for us. That's all we're asking for. It's really simple. And, and I think they are trying to make something very simple, complicated. And I think that's part of the problem. So you uh, consider yourself a progressive. So you, um, uh, like myself, are in favor of programs that are social, so, uh, social programs that benefit people who are not in the top 1%, because um, a lot of people don't really understand that this country is a mixed economy. And, and like we say over and over again, socialism exists in America. It just doesn't benefit the people who need it the most. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you are on a network that constantly vilifies these policies and, uh, you know, likens them to being communist. How uh, what what are your what are your how do you address this? Because I, I get called a communist all the time. And my father, who raised me, is from Cuba and was a political prisoner. So I'm very well aware of what a communist country uh, feels like, right, because of, of the reality of what growing up with a person who, who grew up in a communist country and had to defect. So when, when, I, when I hear people saying that we want to make America a communist country because we think that health care and education should be accessible to all of the citizens of the country, how do you... Uh, how do you approach it in your Richard Fowler way? Because I'm, I'm, I'm like this now. I'm at this. <laughs> I'm these conversations anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think it takes it. Do, I mean, it does take a little. Like you have to. I mean, you have to approach a conversation with truth, right? So I always start with definitions, right? Okay. And so it's a simple one of like communism, where the government owns the means of production. So where do where in the affordable care like? Actually, progressives were upset, like people who were like, like our, our personal friend, Jank Uger, right, was upset with the Affordable Care Act because the Affordable Care Act didn't have a system where the government owned the means of production. And the, the Affordable Care Act basically said, we're going to give people who can't afford it money so they can go get health care in the private market. 
Isn't that exactly what Republicans want us to do? Don't they want us to fund private business and private industry? So you really just got to start with definitions and then start asking rhetorical questions, right? So like, and it, it, it's with everything, right? Like even when they, cause they make so many generalizations about so many things that it's important to ask questions. Like when they say, oh, the Black Lives Matter protesters are rioting. And I'm like, how do you know that they were Black Lives Matter protesters? And they're like, well, um, um, no, I'm like, did you know, did you, were you there? Did you see them? Like, is with the like case, and they were like, "Oh, and they broke. They were in their." I read the court documents. Um, did you see any evidence that indicated these peaceful protesters on their way to the mayor's house? May I add, was harming the McCloskeys? Maybe just maybe the McCloskeys were in their business because the protesters weren't even trying to talk to the McCloskeys. The McCloskeys should have been in their house minding their damn business, and they would have been interacting with the protesters. <laughs> Because the protesters were minding their bit, like the protesters weren't even bothering them. They decided, and they took it upon themselves to bother the protesters. Protesters were like, we're on a mission to get to the mayor's house. He happens to live here, so we're passing by your house in the process, but we're not here for you. And so I think it's really important to just like expose them to facts. And usually when the facts bear themselves out, you'll, you'll realize that and the facts, the facts on everything, right? Like Donald Trump says he's fund, he's funded HBCUs. Actually, the future, the HBCU Futures Act was first passed by George W. Bush. Then it was renewed by Donald Trump. Then it was renewed again by, um, it was renewed by, it was passed by George W. Bush, renewed by Barack Obama, and then passed again by Donald Trump. The facts actually matter here, right? And so when he, when they say these things, it's important to back them up with facts. And then you ask, and then also just asking rhetorical questions. Like I always ask them, you know, especially when it comes to policing, which is where we have a lot of the battles. Like I always say like, so do you really think that, do you really think that young black children are gonna call the police to help them when they see all the things that are happening around them? Would you, if you were a young black man, call the cops when the cops accidentally shoot people who look black? Like, cause I wouldn't. And I think as a black man, this is the struggle. I live in a black, I live in a predominantly black community. And the struggle is calling the cops in my own community. Even if I have a problem with my neighbor, calling the cops to be the intercessor is it's better off. We figure it out than calling the police because calling the police to deal with the problem could end up with one of us getting shot on accident because that happens a lot. It shouldn't, but it does. And so I think part of it is just really having a conversation about truth. And I think what you find with, um, our friends on the right is they, they they live in a lot of hyperbole and they live in a lot of lies. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting and funny to watch it, right? Because even when you think about how like Donald Trump would say he's like the best, he's I'm the best candidate for the LGBTQ community. And I'm like, in what world, <laughs> right? The number one employer of transgendered Americans in the country was the military. And you kibosh that, you banned them from working at the number one employer for, LG, for for transgendered Americans. And and that's after all the generals were like, yeah, no, we like the transgender troops. They're great. They're 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 key to our like they increase morale. Nobody has a problem with them, but you and Mike Pence, but since you and Mike Pence are on this sort of, you know, righteous moral quote unquote, you know, journey to, you know, put gay people on an island and, you know, discriminate against black folk. Um, this is where we are. And, and so I think it's really important just to, it, it, just, just truth, 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 truth. And that's, I mean, that's part of the, that's the ball game, right? Is 
like the facts matter and truth matters. And the job is to just talk about the truth and make it simple. And my mom would say, make it plain pastor. And I mean, I think that's the other job because like I said, at the top of this conversation, Aida, it's not radical right. to want your kids to go to a good school. It's not radical for grandma and grandpa to go when they're sick, to be able to go to the hospital and not worry about the bill. It's not radical to have a grocery store in your community. These things aren't right. It's not radical to be pulled over the pulled over by the police and not be in fear for your life. These things aren't radical. These things are actually normal, right? Because in suburban America, that's everyday life for them. And so what 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 they have, every other American should have. And I think that is what the fight's about. And I think it's very important for folks on the progressive side of the aisle to realize that our ideas aren't radical. They're just normal, right? And it's even not, I would go further to say, it's not radical for American students to say, you know what, we want a bailout for all the student loan debt that we have. You know why that's not radical? Because every other major corporation has gotten a bailout. Look at where the airline industry is today. The airline industry has already gotten one bailout from the, from the government. Mind you, they got a bailout after September 11th. They've just gotten a bailout, and they're literally saying, we're going to lay off workers if we don't get another bailout. And guess what's going to happen? They're going to get another bailout, right? And while that's happening, millions of American young people, millions of students, millions of families who want to buy homes, who want to start families, who want to have children, who want to upgrade the washer that doesn't work in their homes, want to do all these things, but they can't because they have a big shackle to their foot called student loan debt, because guess what? They wanted to pursue the American dream. And our government's response to them is, sorry, not our fault. According to Betsy DeVos, you shouldn't have taken so much debt or you should have went to a for-profit college, I guess. That's not radical. It's not. So uh, I want to ask you, because I have to ask you, have you, have you, did you watch the RNC? I have. I've watched every night and I'll be watching tonight. Um, and I will give, and I'll give them credit. I'll give them credit. They um, I'm taking my glasses off for this one. Um, they are making a very, very good attempt at trying to reach out to brothers like they really are. They're like we are we are hell bent on going after black men. Um, I'm not saying they're making the best. They're making the best attempt at it but they're hell-bent at making an attempt at it, and this should worry us as progressives. And let me tell you why. I, I think they, this should worry us because remember that Donald Trump has two, there's two roads for him to travel with African-American male voters. There's only one road for Joe Biden. For Joe Biden, you have to vote for him, right? For Donald Trump, you could either vote for him or you could stay home. If you stay home, you vote for Donald Trump. If you vote for him, it's a win for him. But he wins if you stay home. He wins if you don't vote. And so if they can create enough doubt mm -hmm. around Kamala Harris and Joe Biden by bringing up the crime bill, by bringing up how many brothers they locked up and how many brothers Donald Trump freed, they can create enough doubt to move enough African-American men to stay at home. And this worries me. And this worries me that they're they're doing it. And it's very like I think it's very and, and in doing so, they're also trying to reach out to suburban women because in, in like the whole ideal of Trump saying like everybody's saying Trump's not racist, 
look, look at his black friend saying he's not racist. It's also their attempt to reach out to suburban white women who are the other deciders in this election. But other than that, I, I found their, the, <laughs> the convention to be very interesting. I thought the McCloskeys were very disturbed. There's some of the speakers that are very disturbing, mm -hmm. um, especially some of their anti-choice, their anti, um, their pro-life speakers. Oh, I think one, okay. one talked about how she like smelt, she smelt the smell of abortion. I, I didn't know it had a smell, but um, hey. She's a mother of a brown child, which she said she had no problem with him being profiled by the police, uh, you know, because the propensity of violence amongst, uh, I mean, the potential of violence is higher amongst uh, people of color. I, um, you know, I think it's interesting. The RNC felt, like I said, um, I said in the first hour, it felt like a circus to me. And, and it's not me trying to diss it. It just had this, it was this surreal um, appearance um, with Kim, like the, the whole, like, I don't understand why they were shouting. I mean, it was just, it was so sensationalized and it was like, it felt like a, a rally, not a convention. And it just, it, it was disturbing to me to see that on national television because I feel like so much misinformation. And mind you, I, I feel that way about it across the board, right? Because I do feel that way from um, left, uh, alleged left uh, wing media as well. But I, I just felt like it was just, I was like, wow. I felt like a scene from Idiocracy. <laughs> it was just, I was like, this is, uh, is horrible. Um, you uh, you show up every day. You have your radio show. How mm -hmm. different is what you do on your radio show from what ha what happens on Fox News for you? Well, listen, I think uh, my show is just me, right? Me talking to the audience. Uh, my Instagram commentaries are the same. Mm -hmm. And listen, I try to, like, I'm a real, like, as you know, I'm a real person. Like, uh, as you see behind me, Bayard Rustin is one of my heroes, and oh. so I just try to be like totally I like you're not gonna get a different you're not gonna get a different me. Like I am gonna call a spade a spade. Um I am gonna I'm gonna I, I shoot from the hip and I call it like it is. And so I don't think there's there very much of a difference between the person you see that the my written stuff, my radio stuff, and my TV stuff. Um but I will comment on where I like what I what I what I think you're saying around the RNC, right? And the yelling and the like. I almost think as it's if as it's as if they think that we're not in a global pandemic. That's the most shocking part of this convention, right? They act like there's not 180. Now we're close to 180 thousand dead Americans. There's not five. What close to six million infected people? Our hospitals aren't overrun. Like. This is not, it's almost like the coronavirus never happened and it's not still happening. Literally, um, Larry Kudlow, Donald Trump's economic advisor, basically was like, we have, we passed the worst. And I'm like, dude, like there's states that are getting it really bad right now. Like it's happening, it's still happening. College, there's outbreaks happening on college campuses. And in, in the midst of all of this, like you guys still want schools to open and you guys claim that you guys have the best testing, but now we find out today that, you know, oh, we're not, we can't test asymptomatically because there's a backlog. Well, if there's a backlog, that means that y'all don't have the best testing because if you had the best testing system, there wouldn't be a backlog. So there's a lot of lies coming out. And like my mom always used to say growing up, 
whatever happens in the darkness always comes to light. And what? it's starting to come to light for uh, the Trump administration and many of their coronavirus lies. So um, we have a video uh, of uh, Kamala Harris uh, talking about um, Black Lives Matter and policing. Um, I, I, I would like for you to watch it with me and then um, we can talk about it. Also been a, a national conversation about policing. Mm -hmm. And you know the name that you have, Kamala, top cop. And the book that you wrote 10 years ago, Smart on Crime, where you concluded by saying that you wanted to see more police on the street. Do you still feel that way? Listen, I think that there is no question. First of all, when I wrote that book, um, we, Black Lives Matter did not exist. And I give full credit to the brilliance of that movement in terms of what it has done to advance a conversation that needed to happen a long time ago. What Black Lives Matter has done as a movement has been to be a counterforce against a very entrenched status quo around the criminal justice system in America. And that's why I'm so excited about what we can do in terms of a new administration in the White House that is about taking on these issues in a way that makes clear that the American people are ready for it and they want it. So that is uh, vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris. Um, and, um, you know, that is a sensitive area when it comes to Kamala, because Kamala is uh, demonized and vilified a lot when it comes to criminal justice. And as you said earlier, um, how many brothers she locked up. Um, what do you think? I want to know what you think about what she's saying, but I want to know what you think about how she answered the question um, with regards to all of the talking points surrounding Kamala in this time and the things that are being held against her. I mean, that are, yeah, that are being held against her. Look, I think that's a, that's a really good question, right? Um, and I think that we as a country are in a very different time. Uh, we're in a very different time where we can spend the next 70 days analyzing people's records from 10, 20 years ago, or we can acknowledge that there is a wind of change that has swept across this country after eight minutes and 46 seconds of watching George Floyd die. Um, and I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a remarkable part of George in, in Joe Biden's um, acceptance address at the DNC, he talked about speaking to George Floyd's little daughter. And he said, my daddy changed the world. And to some extent, that little young girl is right that George Floyd did change the world because he created and it was a building, it was a building, it was building, it was building, it was building. It was Trayvon Martin started it and it was building and it was building and it was building. Eric Garner, and it was building and it was building and it was building, right? And then Charlottesville and it was, we were building and then we got to George Floyd. And I think because we were in a global pandemic and you couldn't turn away, you couldn't distract yourself with work, you couldn't distract yourself by, you know, going to the mall, you couldn't distract yourself by doing any of that. You had to sit there and wrestle with and, and, and deal with a person being choked to death for eight minutes and 46 seconds while that officer looked in the camera as he did it. And that began to create a seed change all across the country. 
right? And I think what you what we noticed in that moment is that people's old, everybody was forced to change. Corporations that had bad records changed. Lawmakers that had bad records changed. And the reason how you know they changed is because the lawmakers that didn't change are still where they are. Mitch McConnell didn't move, George Floyd didn't move Mitch McConnell. So Mitch McConnell's record is valid to be evaluated. George Floyd didn't move Donald Trump. So his record is worth being evaluated, right? You, when you can tear gas peaceful protesters, your record is worth being evaluated. But with that being said, you could see that George Floyd and that seed change changed people. It changed Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, the guy that said that 47% of Americans mooch off the government, went to a Black Lives Matter protest because in that moment he was like, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. What Black people have been saying all along, I mean, it took him a long time to get there, but what Black people have been saying all along is correct. This is terrible. And so for, Kam for Kamala Harris, I think, yes, we can spend all our time evaluating her record. For, jo for Joe Biden, yes, we can spend the next 70 days evaluating her record. Or we can acknowledge that people, like every human, change, right? And if we can acknowledge that they change, we can say these two individuals have changed, right? They want to make the system better. And who, who to make the system better than folks who have worked in the system for so long that they know where all the mistakes are? right? They wrote the laws and they said, listen, we know this law is bad because in Joe Biden's case, I wrote it. So I know it's bad and I know how to dismantle it, mm -hmm. right? And, and use that to, to, to take them to office. Or do we want to elect somebody who says, to be damned if the system is bad, we need to keep the system going. Or do we want to elect a man who says, who will not condemn white supremacy? To elect a man who says there's good people who are Nazis and KKK folks when he says there's good people on many sides. To elect a man who wants to gas peaceful protesters. So I think this ele elections are about contrast and they're about picking between two choices. And the choices here can't be more clear, right? You have somebody who has, who has spent, who literally after George Floyd's death, right, spent her entire, dedicated her entire Senate office over to fighting back against what happened to George Floyd. She was the key senator in pushing the policing reform bill. Before that, when, when it was stopping Brett Kavanaugh from getting on the bench, Kamala Harris lent her office over to women who were fighting back against a regressive court that wanted to stop a woman's right to choose, right? Who wanted to, a judge that would have pushed back against women who got fired because of how their hair looked, right? So this is like, and so we've got to really sit here and ask ourselves these questions as African-Americans. We could choose to live in the past, we really can. Or we could say, this is about moving our country forward and actually building a bridge to the future for our children. Uh, we can continue to have our children live in a world where Betsy DeVos is their education secretary, or we can live in a world where we have an education secretary that actually believes that black lives matter. We have a president and a vice president that won't even say the words. Like that is, and that was shocking to me when Mike Pence was asked, will you just say it? Like take all the meaning out of it. Take, take the groups out of it and answer the question. Do you believe a black life matters? Just say it, black lives matter. Not the group, not the people connected to it. You don't have to uplift the women that started it. Just say black lives matter. And he couldn't say it. He couldn't utter the words black lives matter, right? Cause I can utter the words yeah, I think Black Lives Matter. I also think 
that white lives matter. I think his, I think Latino lives matter because I do believe that all these lives matter, which is why I'm such a big proponent of Black Lives Matter. Because even if you believe that all lives matter, that, that means that you should uniquely believe that a Black lives matter because that's what's in question in this moment. And, and I think when people say, well, when you respond to like Black lives matter with all lives matter, that's like going to a breast cancer fundraiser and saying, we should be talking about colon cancer. And everybody's looking at you like, but this is a breast cancer fundraiser. Of course, we should be talking about colon cancer. And at the colon mm-hmm. cancer fundraiser next week, we can have that conversation. But today, at this breast cancer fundraiser, we're talking about breast cancer. And that's exactly what they continue to do. And so that's what this election is about. It, it's, a, it's the clearest contrast that we've ever seen in American history between two candidates, because on every issue, these two candidates are in opposite directions. Um, but we can, but like I said, if you want to spend your time evaluating Kamala Harris's and Joe Biden's record from 20 or 30 years ago, do that. But if you're going to do that, then also evaluate Donald Trump's record from 30 years ago. And remember that when Joe Biden was passing the passing the when he was passing the crime bill, Donald Trump had a full page ad in the new in the in a New York paper condemning the Central Park Five and sentencing them to death when they were innocent young black men. So both everybody's record is murky here. Yeah, but you know, I I'll say this. Um, I I am particularly concerned because um, as some of the people who I agree with and have pointed out, you know, George Floyd is um, what happened a few months ago, but this has been happening long before Eric Garner, you know, we Emmett Till, even before Emmett Till, like we sit down and historically this country has had such a um, horrific relationship and, and attitude towards Black Americans in this country. And so w- when I sit here and we talk about this election, what can we demand prior to the election? What what can we say in terms of being practical? Because we can't just say we want we want you to change our lives. But there are some things that we we'd like to see in terms of in the form of policies and um, and 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 it plans to implement these policies to make life better for Black Americans in this country. You know, and, and I, I I like to ask these questions because I'm also a creature of always talking about what are the solutions, right? How are we going to move forward towards making the world a better place? Um, and when we sit down and have these conversations, we, we can talk all day about the ills and the injustices, but we have to be practical in thinking about what solutions, what are the solutions? Because there will be no mass exodus immediately, right? Um and, and, and I ain't mad at anybody who wants to leave this country because of the way that they've treated them, because this, this country has been horrible when it comes to Black American, brown people, immigrants, or whatever. What are some of the things and some of the, the, the practical policies that you think we can, we can work towards um, in order for this Democratic Party who is relying on our vote um, to make a change for our communities? That's such a that's such a that's such a powerful question, and uh, I, I will start with this. So my cousin, who's like my sister, uh, she just had a baby. Well, now she's a little older; she's about three years old. Uh, and I literally said, if we can end racism for my little cousin and start there, because you and I, we have we so our skin is sort of we're are, we have some thick skin, right? So we know how to deal with it. But the little ba- the little black boys and girls who are coming up. If we could end it for them or we could try to end it for them, we should start there. So I always like to start with fixing public education, which I think is thing one, Mm -hmm. right? So we've got to 
when, and I think this is a conversation that and Joe Biden has committed to doubling t- Title One funding, which is money that goes to school, like basically money that goes to schools where they're vulnerable families, right? So I think that's thing number one. Um, is fixing public. And this is where the so this is the civil rights fight of our of our generation is fixing public schools because that's where it starts, right? When they start criminalizing, they start criminalizing young people in kindergarten, right? That's where they criminalize. And we know that a couple of years ago, until Terry McAuliffe became the governor of Virginia, they were basing prison beds off of third grade reading examinations, right? They, they would account, they would look at the third grade reading exam and they would say, if you fail third grade reading, if you are proficient in reading by the third grade, you are more likely than not to be in a prison bed 10 years later. And they would build a prison bed for you 10 years out. And so we, that means we've got to get that. And think about this, right? We spend in the United States about $30,000 a year per prisoner. And we spend around roughly 10 to $15,000 per student. That equation to me is backwards, right? We need to be spending $30,000 per student so we don't have to have any prisoners to spend money on in the future. So that's thing one. I think thing two is we are going. We need to hold. If we learn, if I learn anything from my white, gay male counterparts, is when Barack Obama became president, is they had an agenda, and they basically fought tooth and nail with the White House until they got everything in their agenda done. And I think we have to do the same. So if Joe Biden wins, we will know that he won because African Americans showed up for and, and Lat- Latinas and Latinos showed up for him in record number. And that means the next day, right? That means he gets sworn in. I believe he gets sworn in on the 21st. So before that, during the transition period, we need to be in meetings. We need to be having, we need to have our demands ready. And our demands should be simple. We need you to sign on day one. Pelosi's already passed the bill. So we need control of the Senate, number one. And we need you to pass the George Floyd policing reform bill on day one. We need to be signed into law where you're banning the chokehold. You have a data, you have, you're sharing data so that bad cops can't, you can't leave, you can't be a bad cop in DC, get fired and then become a cop in Alexandria or beca- get a, become a cop in PG County. Like you, sh- you don't become a cop anywhere after you're a bad cop. You're out, you, you're done. You don't police anymore. You go home, you become a secretary, you go work at a call center, maybe the drive through at the McDonald's. I don't know, go crunch numbers in the dark, but you don't, you don't police anymore if you're a bad cop. That's thing, that's and so that's what we've got right. And then I think on top of that, then we've got to start dealing with some of the health disparities in communities of color. So that means investing in a couple of things. I wrote a piece about this in the Grio. We have a nursing shortage in America, and if we want to uplift communities of color, then it's about time when we talk about free community college. We need to have programs where we're recruiting people of color to go into nursing and to go into medical school. And we need to really like, and this is about empowering our communities as well, because think about the difference. And I, my mom was a nurse. I was raised by a pack of nurses and they're all from Jamaica, right? And mm-hmm. I think think about the difference that having a nurse on the block will make for your entire community. Not only is that nurse able to provide just first aid and care to the community, but that nurse's salary also impacts that entire block. So things like that, how do we start changing communities block by block by empowering people 
by giving them by giving them education, by giving them opportunity, and by uplifting the entire community. What Republicans like to talk about is pulling yourself up for your boot by your bootstraps, but sadly they've taken away the boots and they've taken away the straps. And so what I think we've got to do if Joe Biden is elected is we've got to say, where are the boots and where are the straps? Because there's, let me tell you, what I know for a fact is that black and brown folks, we are some of the smartest, brightest, beautifulest people in the world. There's nothing that we cannot do if we don't put our mind, if we put our minds to it. This guy behind me, right? Back then, it wasn't okay to be gay. He was an openly gay man who planned one of the largest civil rights marches in American history. Like, they, we could do this. It's possible. So it's about giving us the opportunity and resources to do it. You think about these brothers, and I tell people all the time, like, even when you think about the folks who are caught up in our criminal justice system, they're not stupid. They're not dumb. If you're a, if you are a, if you are a, if you're a dope boy or you're a drug dealer and you're managing a city and you're a, that's a multi-million dollar operation. So how do we turn those brothers who are, who are entrepreneurs into actual entrepreneurs? And that's what we've got to be focused on when we think about what the next generation of our community is. All right. And I think it's about not only about holding Joe Biden accountable, but it's also about getting engaged and realizing, as you know, that everything, all politics are local. So what's happening in your local community? Who's on your local school board? Who's on your local city council? Who's your local mayor? And just because your mayor's African-American or just because your mayor's a Democrat does not mean that they are serving your best interests. So getting involved in the local community, maybe some, sometimes some, of some folks need to run for office, right? Some people need to get involved and be the change that you want to seek. It's, more, it's one thing just to say the system isn't working. It's another thing to say that I'm going to be the change that I seek in the system. And I, what I'm so proud of is seeing so many young people taking up the mantle and deciding to run for office. Like I know some of my mentees who I remember when they were freshmen in college, like one of my mentees, Jevin Hodge is running for um, mm -hmm. county, he's running for the Board of County Supervisors in Maricopa County, Arizona. He's likely to win. One of my other mentees here in DC is running for city council, Marcus Batchelor. And so take up the challenge and say, you know what? My community's not going to change unless I'm part of that change. And we need young people to run for the school board. If we want to dismantle the school to prison pipeline, we've got to start with school boards. And I walk into far, and you know this, there's far too many school boards where yep. 80 or 90% of the kids are black and brown and 80 or 90% of the school board are white and old. <laughs> they don't look like the parents. They don't look like the students. And that's why the school to prison pipeline is still there. Right. So you said you said a lot in what you said. And um, I do believe that we have to have a plan and we have to be specific about what we're asking for. And we have to be practical. Uh, there are two things that you said that stood with me when you said if you're a bad cop, you got to go. And then you talked about local government and how it affects your community. So I want to share a video with you. Um, uh, that was uh, from the sheriff of Kenosha County in 2018, calling for some uh, racist uh, stuff. And I, I just think that people need to understand because we make a we really make a big deal about the presidential election. But when we start talking about our habitat, our local ecosystem, and we don't realize how these people are affecting our daily lives, 
we need to know how they think. And so I want to share with you um, what uh, what this sheriff thought and why. And, and I want to use this to reiterate the point that it is important to vote locally because these people affect your children. They affect you. They affect your daily life and they affect your survival. I think society has to come to a thresh threshold where there's some people that aren't worth saving. We need to build warehouses to put these people into it and lock them away for the rest of their lives. Let's put them in jail. Let's, let's stop them from truly, at least some of these males going out and getting 10 other women pregnant and having small children. Let's put them away. At some point, we have to stop being politically correct. And I don't care what race, I don't care how old they are. If there's a threshold that they cross, these people have to be warehoused, no recreational time in the jails. We put them away. We put them away for the rest of their lives so that the rest of us can be better. So, <laughs> so and this is why I wanted, uh, I, 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 Irina um, pulled up the video and she talked about it because he says they have little children and she pointed that out and it made me laugh because like we don't, we have little children. Are they their big ones? Uh, but anyway, <laughs> she said, and it made me laugh twice. So um, when this is this is what I'm talking about when it comes to local government. This is uh, these are the people that we vote for or don't vote for when we don't vote and end up in office as a result of us not voting. And they, when he is talking about what you know, people say very racist things, and then they'll say, "I don't care what race they are," but you know what. <laughs> talking about you know what oh we know the dog it wasn't that wasn't even a dog whistle that was a bullhorn yes. right and and i and this is another and i i, I failed to mention this because i think it's important because what ends up happening in a lot of african-american communities and I, I i urge folks to do this right when a police pulls you over when a police is patrolling your neighborhood go outside and ask them where do you live officer and nine times out of ten you're going to hear that officer say someplace that's not that community and that has to change. We need to like, and that's why local elections matter because when you have it, when you have a mayor or when you have a city council that looks like you and I, right? Yeah. You're able to say, we are going to mandate that 90% of this police force has to live and work in this neighborhood, right? And when the cop who, work, who patrols this neighborhood is my next door neighbor, he's gonna think twice about using excessive force. They're going to think three times about you uh, about over policing. Why? Because it's happening in their neighborhood. And I and I'll make another point on this because think about this for just a second. So about 10, 10 miles from where I live, I live in Washington D.C. is Fairfax, Virginia. Fairfax, Virginia is one of the richest counties in America. What would happen if Fairfax's police department was made up of ninety nine percent D.C. residents? How do you think that would go over in Fairfax? Right. <laughs> they would lose their mind if they saw me and you patrolling their streets talking about you need to get back in your house. They'd be like, where are you from? They wouldn't have it. They, were head, they would spontaneously combust if 99% of the police force in Fairfax were black people who lived in D.C. So why is it okay for our police force to be from West Virginia or Pennsylvania or, you know, farther, the farther hinterlands of Maryland? And so we've got, but for that change to happen, we have to demand it. Right, because change doesn't happen willingly. Nobody gives up power willingly. We have to demand it. And it's more than just protesting. It's more than 
hitting the streets and saying Black Lives Matter. It's about when we go to the polls, you could wear your Black Lives Matter t-shirt and you've got to vote and you've got to vote with intention and be an educated voter. Now, is this person for me? Are they not for me? Are they for my kids? Are they not for my kids? Are they for my grandmother? Are they not for my grandmother? When they were asked, when, when the vote came down in city council to build a hospital in the black neighborhood, were they for it or were they, for, were they against it? Do your research. I think we depend a lot on the Democratic Party and the progressive movement to educate us about our candidates, but it's also important that we begin to educate ourselves about our candidates and we also begin to grow our own candidates. We need to be growing folks like Cori Bush out of St. Louis who beat an incumbent. She wasn't the only one this cycle who beat yeah. an incumbent. And they beat incumbents because the incumbent has not been serving the district correctly. And the people say, you don't relate to me. Or as, uh, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would say, you don't drink the water. And because you don't drink the water here, that's not gonna work. And, and it also means that we've got to change. And it also means we've got to dismantle and one of the stumbling blocks to changing that requirement for where, where police officers live is changing the police union. Now, I'm the biggest fan of unions. I love teachers unions because I think my mom was in a nurses union. And I think there's some sectors that deserve to have unions, right, especially in the public sector. Right. right. And I but I think when you are allowed to collectively bargain and use your voice collectively, you should be doing it for the collective good of the people that you serve. And what you find with teachers unions and nurses unions is nine times out of 10, when they get in a fight, they're getting in a fight for their students and for their patients. When my mom got in a fight growing up, it was because there were, she was a NICU nurse. It's because there were too many babies in the nursery and there was not enough nurses, which is a, a, a danger to everybody, right? When nurse, when teachers, decided for the past three years when teachers decided to walk out of the classroom all across this country, it's because there were too many kids and not enough educators. They didn't have up-to-date textbooks. They were working in deplorable school conditions. That affects the students. When police officers get in a fight, it's to protect their own and to cover up for bad cops. And so police unions have to go because they do not look out for the best interests of the people that they're serving. And I think that's my, I mean, I believe in public sector unions when they serve the best interests of the people. The that's postal cool. workers union, what they're fighting for, that's our best interest. They want to deliver the mail on time so that we can get our letters, our prescription drugs, our packages on time. That's for us. The police, the police don't fight for us. They fight for somebody else, themselves. And that's yeah. different and they've got to go. Yeah, and they're also fighting for our voting ballots to come in. That part. <laughs> That part. Um, and that's a worth, worthwhile fight because I'm pro-union, but I'm not pro-police union because they, they fight for themselves. And I'm against that. And other all the other public sector unions that I've worked with and I've had the privilege to fight alongside, they always understood that if we are a public sector union, we're fighting for the public good and not police unions. They fight for themselves. And, in the and, they, and they literally, literally demonize people who look like me. Absolutely. Uh, well, I don't demonize people who look like you, and I'm. No, so I love people. You love people that look like me, and I love people that look like you. And I'm, I'm glad you're here today because um, I think it's important for us to have agents of change throughout. Um, our spectrum has to be represented in all spaces, and I think it's important for people to know who all all of the people who are on the ground working. I mean, I feel like if if the if the white supremacists know who we are and they get to tweet us and send us oh, yeah. messages. 
then the people that we speak for should know who we are. Um, I want you to tell people how they can find you. And um, and and somebody, Chrissy said, I love people who look like him. <laughs> so, Thank you, Chrissy. So, but so I want you to tell people where they can find you and how, sure. um, you know, when to watch. Um, the only time to watch Fox News is only when Richard Fowler is on there. So. Yes. When you watch when I'm on, that means the ratings go up and that's good for me. Um, well, folks, and hit me up on Twitter. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, it's all the same, at Richard A. Fowler. Richard A. Fowler, F-O-W-L-E-R. Um, and I usually post when I'm going to be on. Thanks for having me. And, you know, I think there's something really special about the work that we do, right? Because I think you're called to one of my favorite quotes is from Oprah Winfrey. Um, and she said, the choice to be excellent comes by aligning your thoughts and your deeds with the intention to require more from yourself. Um, and I think this work that we do is hard uh, and it's tough. Uh, but I do it for... I do it for the little kid that looks just like me who didn't see himself on television, right? Like the little gay boy who didn't see himself in TV, now they see me, right? Um, and I do it for the single moms who are struggling like my mom did to raise two boys. Um, and I do it for all, and, I, and, and, and I'm, blessed to be, I'm blessed to be in this space uh, and I'm blessed to have friends like yourself um, and, and, and Ebony who was just on before you, who's a colleague and, and a dear friend of mine um, who we continue to sort of fight the good fight, right? Because we have, we are blessed to be in the space to be a voice for so many um, who their voices have been taken away or they haven't found their voice yet or they're working on getting their voice back. Uh, and so we are blessed to do this work um, and we're continuing, and listen, it doesn't come without its struggles. It doesn't come without its death threats and being called the N word and the F word and everything else. But how I look at it is, listen, call me what you want to. Um, it just means I'm doing the right thing. Uh, but thank you so much for having me uh, in this conversation. I would love to be back uh, and continue this dialogue. Well, we're gonna have to. This conversation is only gonna get. It's only gonna get more crunk as we get closer oh, to yeah. that. And um, as we continue to fight the fight um, to dismantle white supremacy in this country. And I will continue to speak it. Uh, melanin is divine and I'm not gonna let anybody tell me otherwise. And um, I will see you on Instagram, but we will talk soon. So I, I look For forward sure. to that. Love you. Love you Sending back. so much love and approval to everybody watching. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here.